This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. The Gospel of John, chapter 16. John's Gospel, 16th chapter. Throughout the long history of the church, there has always been a renewal of interest in the work and person of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes, even for generations, it seemed that the Holy Spirit barely got a mention. Pentecostals and Charismatics in particular have been quick to highlight the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit, all facets of that. And yet, we have been slow to recognize one particular ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that is to acknowledge his gracious work regarding the unbeliever. Now, the context of John 16, we're going to read a few verses in a moment. The context is John 13, 14, 15, and 16. Those four chapters of John cover a lot of stuff. But it was a very intimate moment where Christ was speaking specifically and particularly to his apostles. As far as his public ministry was concerned, it was over. Within 24 hours, he would be tried, crucified, dead, and buried. And so in those few last remaining hours at what we commonly know as the Last Supper, Feast of Passover, he tries to instill into them his love, his grace, his promises, his comfort, his strength, because not only does he know what he's going to go through, but he knows how devastated they're going to be. He knows how difficult this is going to be for them. Confused, devastated, greatly concerned about their futures, frightened, feeling intimidated. All of that was about to crash in on them. And so Jesus takes (coughs) these few hours, and, and we're only talking maybe three, four hours probably at most, that covers those four chapters. I would encourage you to read those four chapters of John, 13, 14, 15, and 16, and realize the time frame and the setting for it. And as you do that, you'll see the great heart Jesus had for his disciples. Not for himself. He he knew what he was going to go through, and it was going to be horrendous, beyond belief. And yet in that period of time, his thoughts were towards them. How will they handle this? What will it be like for them? And so he encourages them, and he tells them he's going to prepare a place for them. He tells them he's going to to go away, and they don't want to hear that. They have no understanding at all about what he's about to face. They're they're deaf to it. They're, They're almost in denial. This is Messiah. This is the incarnate Son of God. How could he die? Why would he die? He's come to set up his kingdom. We're going to be part of that kingdom. 
They were concerned he was going to sit in his right hand on his left hand. So, so this was, this was a, a shocking moment that was about to hit them. And of course, to hit the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's concerned about them and he, and he tells them very clearly and very plainly that persecution is going to come. And if it's coming to him, would it be any surprise that it would come to them being his disciples? And that's why he says there in, well, if we just read the last verse of actually chapter 15, but when the helper whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you that you should, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things he will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now, Jesus said, but none of you ask me where I am going. But if you read chapter 13 and chapter 14, twice they asked him that very question. So is he denying they said that? No, of course not. But actually, they were asking it for the wrong reason. Their only concern about him going away was what's going to happen to us. His death, their big concern about his death was what would happen to us? If you die, what's going to become of us? They were not concerned about where he's going. In fact, they told him at one point, he says, if you knew where I was going, you would rejoice. Strangely enough, even knowing what he was going to have to go through to get to where he was going, back to the Father, back to the right hand of the Father, to have all that glory he had with the Father before the Word began, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He had all that ahead of him, and he knew that he was going to have to go through this to get to that. And actually he said, if you knew what I was going to, you would rejoice with me. But sorrow has filled your hearts. Why? Because they were only concerned about themselves. If he goes wherever he's going to go, what about us? What's going to happen to us? Now, is it not true that humanly we're like that too? If a loved one dies, even though we know they're born again, they're in God's presence, absent from the body, present with the Lord, even though we know all of that, but yet we want them to be here because what's going to happen to me now? How am I going to cope? How am I going to handle this situation? What am I going to do without him, without her? That's her, that's her humanity. That's her human nature. And they were no different. What are we going to do? He said he's going away. Instead of saying, Lord, well, what are you going to do when you go away? Exactly what's going to happen? And of course, he'd tell them about the glory and all the rest of it, and they could rejoice about that, but they didn't. Well, for a start, they didn't want him to go away. Didn't even want to believe he was going to go away because they're only concerned about themselves. 
No wonder Jesus says to them, I have many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. I'll have to trust the Holy Spirit to enlighten you and to teach you. So then he says this, this incredible statement. They were really, really going to struggle with this. Nevertheless, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. Now that is an incredible statement that they're just not getting. They can't see it or understand this. They want him there in the flesh. They had him for just over three years in the flesh. He met all of their needs. They could talk to him any moment. They could reach out. They could touch him. They could handle him. They could put their arms around him. They could hug him. But he says, actually, it's going to be better for you when I go. Because if I go, I'll send the Holy Spirit. And that will be to your advantage. You'll be far, far better off. Isn't that incredible? He's telling them that the intangible, untouchable Holy Spirit coming to them, residing in them, is going to be far, far better than his physical, tangible presence that they could reach out and they could see and they touch. He says, it's going to be better for you. Actually, they were going to have to walk by faith and not by sight. And every born-again believer since then has had to walk by faith and not by sight. We've had to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We've had to trust the Holy Spirit to make Christ real to us and the Father real to us. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. What a wonderful statement that is. And so, if he stayed, think about this. John Phillips, uh, a great preacher author, wrote this, and I think this is lovely. He said, suppose that after his resurrection, Jesus had announced to his disciples that instead of going home to heaven, or instead of sending the Holy Spirit, he decided to stay himself. Suppose he had said, and now, Peter, I intend to set up my headquarters here in Jerusalem. This upper room will do for the time being. I intend to stay here for a very long time. And you can be in charge of appointments. People will want to see me. No interview can last more than 15 minutes. From time to time, I will arrange a tour of other lands. But Jerusalem is to be my place of permanent residence. Audience with myself will be in strict order of application. There will be no favoritism, no concession to rank or privilege. Each person will be allowed a private audience and will be allowed to speak to me and request of me whatever is on their heart or mind. Well, he said, we can imagine the result. Before long, the waiting list would be endless. People would wait a lifetime for one brief interview. Many would never even make it. Altogether, it would be an unsatisfactory arrangement. Instead, Jesus is accessible to one and all who call upon his name. The Holy Spirit is here to make good in our hearts all those great and exceeding precious promises that are part of the gospel of God's grace. No wonder Jesus said it is expedient it is to your advantage that I go away. 
He could only be in one place at one time. But the Holy Spirit, whom he sent, the helper, the paracletos, the one called alongside to help, he lives in each and every believer's heart. So we have access to that throne of grace continually. We don't need Jesus to be in the flesh. Yes, in our daydreams, it would be lovely. In our, in our daydreams, we would think, what a joy it would be if Jesus was just here in the flesh. Jesus actually says, no, it's better that I'm not here in the flesh. It's better that the Holy Spirit's in you and you learn to walk by faith and not by sight and trust my spirit in you to lead and to guide. So that's where we are. And then he makes this amazing statement also. And when he has come, the Holy Spirit, he will convict or convince. You can use either. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Let us focus now on those couple of verses and think about the, the gracious work of the Holy Spirit to the unbeliever. Now we need to look carefully at these four verses because there's a danger we may misunderstand what Christ is saying here. If we take these words in isolation, you might be left with the impression that it is solely the responsibility of the Holy Spirit to convict, to convince the world of these three things, of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. However, verse 7, the preceding verse, is the key to unlock its true meaning. Verse 7, he says, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And when he has come, where? To whom? To you, to me. And when he has come to you, then he will convince, convict the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment. So in other words, the Holy Spirit and us, not just the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit through us, will convict, will convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. That's what Jesus is saying. You see, Jesus in his body on earth fulfilled his mission on earth in a body. Now the Holy Spirit has come in his place, but he needs a body to operate through, to manifest himself through. And it's the body of Christ on earth, which is us, the church, every believer, our bodies, Paul says, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit's going to do something in this earth towards unbelievers, guess what? He's going to do it through us. He's not going to act in isolation. He's going to act through us. Are you still with me? I will send the Holy Spirit to you, and when he has come, where? To whom? To us. 
He will convince and convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. In John 14, verse 15 to 17, or to 18 actually. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. The world knows nothing about the Holy Spirit doesn't understand the Holy Spirit, doesn't hear the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit working through us is a different thing. He needs us to work through to fulfill his mission to glorify Christ so that we can point men to Jesus. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 14, you don't necessarily need to turn to this, I'm going to read this from the, the New Living Translation. Paul says, No eye has seen nor ear heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But we know these things because God has revealed them to us by his Spirit. And his Spirit searches out everything and shows us even God's deep secrets. No one can know what anybody else is thinking except the person that that person alone. And no one can know God's thought except the Holy God's own Spirit. And God has actually given us His Spirit, not the world's Spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. When we tell you this, we don't, do not use words of human wisdom. We speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't Christians can't understand those truths from God's Spirit, it all sounds foolish to them because only those who have the Spirit can understand what the Spirit means. We, have the, we who have the Spirit understand these things, but others can't understand us at all. How could they? For who can know what the Lord is thinking and who can give himself counsel, who can give him counsel? But we understand these things for we have the mind of Christ. Now, it may seem like, if you just read that on the surface level, it may seem like that the unbeliever doesn't stand one single word you're saying. So it's no good even talking to them about spiritual things because they just don't get it. If that's the case, why would we preach? Why would we testify? Why would we witness? Why does the Bible tell us to continually be his witnesses? Why should we even bother to share? Because the Holy Spirit will take what we say, the things of the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the teachings of Christ. He will take those things through us and implant them into the heart of the unbeliever. That's how it works. That's why he needs us to do this. That's why we need to be filled with the Spirit so that we can share Christ. We can share the gospel. The Holy Spirit needs you to testify. He needs you to witness. He needs you to preach. And then he can supernaturally plant those thoughts into the hearts and into the minds of the unbelievers. Three things the world should see and be convicted when it looks at the church, when it looks at us. It should be convicted of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, 
because they do not believe in me, Jesus said. <coughs> do we convict the world of sin? I think we do. And I think that's why the world kicks against us, because it doesn't want to be reminded of its sin. Stephen Fry, the broadcaster, the comedian, storyteller, broadcaster, launched an awful blasphemous thing against God Almighty. He hates God. He says that. He doesn't believe in God, but he hates him nonetheless, which is a contradiction in terms. Why? Because a sinful lifestyle, the Bible denounces it. And the church and true Christianity denounces it. And he hates that. He doesn't want anybody to judge him. That's why he hates it. And if we remind the world of sin, the world will hate us. Jesus reminded the world of sin because he was perfect, he was righteous, he was holy. And they crucified him for it. And Jesus said, if they did this to me, they'll do it to you. You know, John Wesley one time got off his horse and he prayed. He says, Lord, nobody has stoned me today. Nobody's threw stones at me today. He thought he was slipping. <laughs> During one great revival in the United States, one of the great men in the revival, and he was a very handsome man, and a very wealthy factory owner who was a Christian, took him through his factory. And he was well known. And all the girls started to whistle at him. It was a woman's factory. He didn't say a word. He just turned around and looked at them. And one by one by one, they started to fall on their knees. They were so convicted of their sins just by his presence. That's the Holy Spirit can do that. We're not there yet, sure we're not. But have you noticed in your workplace that when something comes up, they'll look at you. What do they think? What are they saying? And right now in this particular phase, in this generation that we live in, Christianity is under attack continually. Laws are being brought out against us because we convict men of their sins just because we're living righteously. At worst, the world would want to banish Jesus altogether, and communism and atheism has tried and has failed. Communist China tried for years, and rather than banishing, <laughs> the Chinese church is growing continually. The name of Jesus has spread out the length and breadth of China. And Russia has been the same in communist countries and atheist countries. At best, they would try to relegate him as simply a teacher, an exemplar, a philosopher, an icon, an idealist. But the church keeps saying, no, he's the Savior, he's the Redeemer, he's the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world for your sins. And that's what convicts. That's what convicts. So the Holy Spirit working through our lives, our witness, our testimony, our preaching, convicts men and women of the need for a Savior. Hallelujah. 
And over the years as a pastor, many persons come to me and say, Pastor, if you knew what my work was like, if you knew what my workplace was like, if you knew what this cursing and the swearing and the blaspheming, hey, listen, I worked in that type of workplace for years, so I know exactly what it's like. But I would say, wait a minute, are you not called to be salt and light? Maybe that's the place where God has you, to be salt and light, to be a witness and a testimony in that dark place. Maybe you'll be the only one. Let me tell you, I've experienced all this. They, they, they try to ride you. They try to get at you. They try to say things and do things. But whenever their wee son or their wee daughter's gone in the hospital for an operation, guess who they come to in the sly and say, could you say a wee prayer for my wee Johnny? Hmm. Some of the ones that gave me the worst time in work, whenever their wife or their children was in trouble, it was me they came to. They looked around to make sure nobody was looking at them. And then they said, could you say a wee prayer? The sin that will condemn any man and every man is that sin because they do not believe in me. Not that they don't believe he existed, but they don't believe in me. They don't trust me. They won't give their life to me. They won't surrender to me. That's the sin that condemns every man. Yes, they have lots of sins. Lots of them, different sins. But it's the sin of unbelief. They will not believe in me. That's what condemns. And so the Holy Spirit working through us in the workplace, amongst our neighbors, wherever we may be, can bring that conviction, that convincing of sin to bring the person to belief in Jesus Christ. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Jesus' life on earth was radically different than anybody else's. Even those scribes and Pharisees, those religious people, they had religion right up to their neck. They had all kinds of laws. But nobody was as revolutionary as the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know how revolutionary he was and how different he was and how different he thought, read his Sermon on the Mount. All you've got to do is read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and you'll see how high his standard was. In fact, if I could just point out here in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, or that's a, a derogatory term, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, you idiot, shall be in danger of hell fire. 
Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go to your way. Go your way first. Be reconciled to your brother, then coming off your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you to the officer and you be thrown into prison. <laughs> Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. You have heard of all that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. That is an incredibly high standard, is it not? Jesus was the most righteous man that ever walked the face of the earth, the most holy man. He had a perfect right standing with God, perfect in every way. Righteousness is having a right standing with God. And there was no hope for us to ever have that. We could not do that. The gap was too great. We were too sinful. God was too holy. But Jesus came, died on that cross, and reconciled us and gave us his righteousness. He took our sins upon him on that tree, and he gave in exchange our righteousness. He took our debts we were greatly indebted to God because of our sins. And the wages of those sins was death. But he took that debt, he paid that price, and wiped that slate clean so that we were no longer indebted. It was gone. But then he did more than that. He gave us, he imputed to us, Paul says in Romans. He put into our account his righteousness. He took all of our debts that was in our debt account and paid it. And then he took his righteousness and gave it to us, to our credit. What a wonderful Savior. What a great gospel this is, isn't it? So, the Holy Spirit in us shall convict the world of sin and of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Who is the world going to see? How are they going to see Christ's righteousness except through us? <coughs> the only way they will see Christ's righteousness is through us, the believer. It's the only way they're going to see it. So that's why we have got to live righteously. We have got to be an example and live righteously because Christ has given us his righteousness. And we can only do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes into us, he gives us the power to live righteously. We could not do it otherwise. We could not do it in our flesh. We would feel every single time. The Pharisees and the scribes, all these laws that we're trying to keep the minutiae of the law. They even had hundreds of other laws. They added to the law to keep all of these to try to be righteous, but they kept failing because the standard was higher than they could ever make it. But when we accepted Christ, he gave us his righteousness and the Holy Spirit helps us to walk in that righteousness. We could not do it without the work of the Holy Spirit. And so wherever we are, whoever we live among, whoever we work beside, we can, just by simply being there as a believer, convict and convince them of sin 
and of righteousness. Letting them know that Christ is righteous. And of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. There's a vast difference between the teachings of Christ and the philosophies of this world. Satan has held sway over the philosophies of this world for such a long time. It's second nature, isn't it? It's inbred. Look at this in Colossians chapter 2. Let me just read this to you. Verse 6, As you therefore have received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you. Actually, in the column beside this, in the, uh, in the column it says, lest anyone plunder you or take you captive. So lest anyone cheat you through, the, through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. This world is full of philosophies. It's full of high-sounding ideas. Evolution has gripped the minds and the hearts of untold millions. It's been taught in our very schools. It's taught in every museum. Children grew up thinking that we came from monkeys or we came from something that crawled out of the sea and there's no purpose to life, that we're just some kind of animal and we live like a dog and we die like a dog and that's the end of it. That's what evolution basically teaches. It has not done any good to anyone. It hasn't invented anything. It hasn't solved any problems. It has done nothing for biology. Nothing. And yet it's been taught as fact and it is destroying the minds and the hearts of millions, particularly young people, who's being saturated with it in these days. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Such foolishness is taught today. Such philosophic absolute nonsense that goes on today. First John chapter 2. First 
1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. 2 Corinthians Second Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, be ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Lots of high-sounding arguments today. Don't worry about them. Let me tell you, they'll change next week. Having an interest in the stars, not in astrology, but astronomy, astronomy, having an interest in all of that, the cosmos and all of that. Let me tell you, since ever I had an interest, they constantly change the idea. It used to be the astronauts wiped out the dinosaurs, and now they're saying, no, that really didn't happen. It was something else. And next week it'll change again, because they have no clue, they have no idea. They're following a false trail because they will not accept what God says in his word. So they just keep coming up with more ideas continually. There's a whole industry based around it. People are being allotted millions to try to find out these things. They're sending beams, I read today, they're sending uh, beams into space uh, telling those aliens out there somewhere, if they are there, giving them a message of peace and all the rest of it. A load of baloney absolute nonsense and they're getting millions to do it we simply believe the word of God we take it as God said it because it doesn't change now he said of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged Satan has been judged his sentence is passed he awaits his punishment he awaits a lake of fire. It's a done deal. It's not going to change. It will happen. Our part is to herald God's truth. Our part is to hold up the Word of God as the final authority to this unbelieving, skeptical, philosophical, sin-cursed world and say, this is the truth. Whether you believe it or don't believe it, it's not going to change. This is the truth. Only the Holy Spirit can give us the strength and the power and the guts and the wisdom to hold this word forth as truth. Why? Because it's constantly being bombarded every single day and denied and ridiculed and blasphemed and laughed at. So we need the power of the Holy Spirit to stand true to God's word. So the Holy Spirit through us will convict or convince the word of sin and of righteousness 
and of judgment. So man must be convinced of three things of sin. Otherwise, he sees no need of a savior. It's not popular today among preachers to preach about sin anymore. It's not popular. It doesn't draw the crowds, truthfully. But how is a man going to need a savior if he doesn't know he's a sinner? He doesn't want to be saved from what? If he doesn't understand that he's lost in sins, he won't think of a savior. I remember one time years ago when we were teaching evangelism explosion. Remember, it was in Lisbon, it was this wee woman's house. And she went to church. She was a lovely church-going woman all her life. I think she's maybe even in the choir. And so very gently and quietly, and we took a little bit of time, we tried to show her that she was a sinner before God. A hopeless sinner before God. Not that she didn't think that she sinned sometimes, because everybody does, but she didn't think she was a big enough sinner to be lost. She didn't think she was a big enough sinner to need a Savior. She thought, well, I'm not perfect, but I think I've done enough for God to let me in. But we got to the place where she began to realize that she was an absolute hopeless sinner before a holy God. And that even one sin would condemn her before a holy God. You know what she said to me? Well, what hope is there for anybody? I says, exactly. No hope for anybody except through Christ. Because he's the one who paid the price for your sin and my sin. You'd think a woman who had gone to church all her life would know that, but didn't. Because she thought she was good enough. She wasn't a bad enough sinner. And that's self-righteousness, isn't it? So somehow we have got to convince people and show people that they are literally a sinner before God and nothing can save them. Their works can't do it. Their good works can't do it. Their nicety can't do it. Their mild-mannered nature can't do it. Only Christ can save them from their sins. Only he paid the price. We've got to convince them of righteousness that they can have a right standing with God that's based not on their works, but based on Christ's righteousness. They've got to show them that. That if you've ever gone to get to heaven, you're going to have to be righteous before God. And the only way is through Christ. But thankfully, you can be righteous. Even though you know now that you are a hopeless sinner, but thank God there's a cure and you can't stand righteous before a holy God through what Christ has done. See, this is the essence of the gospel, isn't it? This is the true gospel of Jesus Christ and of judgment to come. The understanding that Satan and sin has been defeated on the cross of Calvary. He triumphed over them in it. He made a show of them openly. <laughs> and so he needs to know that after he's been delivered from sin, that there's victory against sin when Satan comes with his temptations and his snares, that there's victory over that. Oh, yeah. The Holy Spirit of God 
is the one who, when he comes into our lives and we are saved and born from above, born of God's Spirit, then he's the one who works through us to convict and to convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And if our lives can do that by our lifestyle in Christ, by the words that we say, then there's no question that we're going to influence people for Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will take your words, your testimony, your witness, and he'll plant that in the heart of the unbeliever. Most of us got saved through the influence of some believer, didn't we? Somebody in a family member, somebody we're watching, somebody we work with, and they influenced us for Christ. How did they do that? Because the Holy Spirit was working through them. Just even their lifestyle. Some little word they said. A little part of a conversation. And they put the gospel in. And the Holy Spirit took that and he used that, planted that in the heart. That's what he does. And that's what he does for the unbeliever. That's what he did for us. That's why we're saved tonight. That's why we're born again of God's Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, we thank you for the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you sent him to us, that you did not leave us comfortless. Thank you, Lord. That inside every believer, the Spirit of God dwells and works through and speaks through and acts through. So we thank you for this privilege that we have the comforter in us and that we can have the mind of Christ that we can understand his word because the Holy Spirit is the author of this word so we thank you that through his ministry that we can touch and reach others for Christ thank you for that Lord thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to us and thank you, Holy Spirit, that you came and you indwelt each of us. Live your life through us. Complete your mission through us. Glorify Jesus through us. Lift up Jesus through us. And let your work be done in our lives. That God may be glorified. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk.